Somebody close that back door, please. Is this your first time at Solid Rock? Oh, it's been a long time since you've been here. Your church ain't got bars like that. I just want y'all to know. Y'all church don't got bars like that. They ain't John Blaze like that. Jonathan is the black Eminem. You ain't hear the wordplay? We got bars like that at Solid Rock. We got bars. Pastor got bars too. Don't play with me. We got bars. All right, uh, I'm going to ask everybody to do one thing that I never do. If you have a cell phone or somebody who likes to talk to you often during the messages, don't do that today. In fact, look at your neighbor and say, don't, don't distract me today. <laughs> now look at your other neighbor and say, but your feet smell like cold chips. <laughs> now they mad at you and they ain't going to bother you after that. Man. And if it's true, we'll talk about that after service. I don't want anyone to be distracted today. So if you're, on, if you're in a joke time mood and you want to talk, please get up and go out there with the person and then come back in. Make sure your phones are on silent because we need to talk today. We're going to talk today. We've been in a series highlighting what we call the schemes of the devil. And that, that language largely comes from a passage in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11. Here's what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. He's highlighting that they need to forgive someone and that he also will forgive a person. And he says this, introducing this concept. Reading from the ESV, he says this, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. 2 Corinthians 2.10 Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we should not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now this word, the Greek word for designs is noema, and it means thought, mind, or purpose. It can mean intention or understanding. And so many translations translate the word schemes, and a couple use the word devices. But the point is, Satan is active, and he's active towards the church. He's not active towards people who aren't of the church because he already has those people. He's active towards you. When we talk about schemes of the devil, we often talk about it from the standpoint of here's what they are so that you don't give in to sin. That's, what, that's the angle we come from. And while committing sin is obviously part of the devil's desire for us, it is not his ultimate goal. In fact, getting us to give in to sin is just a means to an end for him. The ultimate goal of the enemy is to get you and I to walk away from the grace that we have been given by God. And the best way to do it is to get you to sin and then come after you after you do it. Up till now, we focused on strategies so as not to fall. But we all know that we're going to fall sometimes. In fact, God knows this. 1 John 2.1 literally says this. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the Christ. So understand, yes, we teach so that you don't sin. We read the Bible so that you don't sin. God's word is laid out to warn us, to help us so that we don't sin. But when we do sin, there's an advocate before the Father. There's something else we have to remember. So our don't fall strategies have been helpful, proactive, but we often struggle, and the struggle is often what happens after we give in, when we feel defeated, hypocritical, when we give in because we didn't feel strong enough to resist, what happens then? If you listen to messages and you hear wonderful strategies about how not to fall and you're thinking, man, last night I watched pornography and masturbated. So everything he's saying, I've already done that. Then what? I lost my temper with my spouse and we still haven't resolved that. And now I'm in church. Then what? I've already done the things that the pastor is saying, so while I agree with them, I can't with confidence because I just failed. Some of us have lost confidence to fight certain sins, especially ones of a sexual nature, because we feel like we've sinned already, even just by being tempted. Some of us don't know the difference between being tempted and actually sinning. Because we've given in so much, it's one and the same to us. If we're tempted, we think we got to give in. So the only way we fight is if we're not tempted. But the minute we're tempted, we give in. And then we feel discouraged, defeated. We forget that temptation is a fundamental part of what it means to be a believer and is necessary for imitating Jesus. If I'm being honest, I think many Christians misunderstand what it means to imitate Jesus. Like, I don't know what you think when you hear imitate Jesus, be imitators of God. I don't know what you think about. I would love to do a poll. When you hear imitating Jesus, what do you think you're supposed to do? Go off into the wilderness to pray, walk on water, cast out demons, do certain miracles? Many people think yes. But you know what else Jesus had happened to him? It says he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So if you're a Christian imitating Jesus, do you not think you will experience sorrow and grief? Jesus was rejected by men. Do you think you're not going to be rejected by people? Jesus was falsely accused. You don't think someone's going to say you did something that you didn't do or misunderstand your motive? Is that not imitating Jesus as well? Jesus was betrayed by people close to him. Anybody felt betrayed by somebody close to them lately? Yet we treat that as if like we're justified in treating everyone a certain way because we've been betrayed because we don't make the connection that that's part of what it means to imitate Jesus. You will be betrayed by people close to you, quite possibly. Jesus engaged in spiritual warfare. Do you think you're not going to? That there's not going to be any opposition? You got pastors out here talking about don't let nobody stop your purpose. The devil will. He's definitely going to try. 
What do you think it means to imitate Jesus? He was tempted by the enemy. So if you're a follower of Jesus, guess what? You're going to be tempted by the enemy too. No servant is greater than his master. And Jesus is our only master. Temptation is not just about giving in to sin. There are schemes that the devil uses after we give in to sin. In fact, the biggest scheme of the devil happens in the moments after we fall, and it is so deceptive and so effective that we think it's normal. We don't even really see it. Well, today, we're going to pull back the curtain. The title of this sermon is called What We Must Understand After We Fall. This is not trying to get you not to sin. This is going to talk to us about what happens after we sin. There are schemes the devil uses to get to us after. This scheme applies to every area, but especially when we give in to sins related to sexual expression. And the scheme I'm talking about, the greatest scheme that the devil has against believers is feeling sorrow for sin. Let me explain. Last week, Mike mentioned the situation in Corinth where a young man was intimate with his father's wife. But alongside that, there was the issue of the church listening to men who were preaching a gospel that wasn't authentic. It wasn't about Jesus. It wasn't centered on Jesus. And they were believing these men instead of Paul who planted the church and taught them the authentic gospel. So Paul wrote a very firm letter. He wrote four letters. We have two of them. We have the second and fourth letter. We call them first and second Corinthians. But his first and third letters, God said, no, I'm not letting y'all read them. And one of the reasons why is because that third letter, whatever it said, was so scathing that Paul was concerned about how they would react when they read it. And so he sent Titus to go find out how are they doing after writing that letter. And here's what he says to them after hearing Titus's report. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 5 through 9. And I quote, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which, with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. You felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. So Paul wrote a scathing letter. He did what pastors have to do. Sometimes as your pastor, I have to correct you and I run the risk of people getting offended. But I care more about your soul than I do about your applause. 
And so Paul's saying, listen, I was worried about how you would react. But then Titus said, you guys are repenting. You're responding. So now I don't feel bad anymore. I did for a second, but now you guys are reacting the way I wanted you to, which is to express godly grief. After his expressing his excitement about Titus's report, he talks to them about the scheme of the devil we are focusing on today, feeling sorrow for sin. And here's what he says in verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief produces a a, a, a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I'm using sorrow instead of grief because the Greek word allows for it. The Greek word lupe means grief or sorrow, so it's translated sorrow, grief, affliction, pain to the body. So Paul is highlighting godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly sorrow produces death. Well, Satan is the god of this world. So if Paul is contrasting godly sorrow with worldly sorrow and Satan is the god of this world, then he is contrasting godly sorrow with satanic sorrow. Remember, Satan appears as an angel of light. Yeah. 2 Corinthians 11. So even feeling sad about sin can be satanic. This is a good hustle. Now, we tend to call it conviction versus condemnation. Whatever you call it, there is a sorrow that is salvific, that has to do with salvation, and a sorrow that is satanic. And the satanic sorrow, I think, dominates the church and people in this room. And so we're going to talk about it. What is satanic sorrow? Case in point, Matthew 27, verses 1 through 5. Here's what we see. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Satanic sorrow, which is essentially shame. Shame. Let's look at the characteristics of satanic sorrow, of shame. 2 Corinthians 10 tells us, again, that worldly sorrow, satanic grief, satanic sorrow produces death. Listen to how eerily close satanic sorrow and salvific sorrow are. Listen to this. Look at the observation. Satanic sorrow changes its mind. Look at verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. Now, I don't know how many of you know this, but the word repent 
that we hear often in the God. The word repent in the Greek is a word called metanoia. And that means literally to change one's mind. So when, when, the, when Jesus said it and when the apostles and Acts said, you need to repent and believe and then be baptized, be baptized. They were saying, you need to change your mind. Right. So repent means to change your mind. Repentance means to have actions that follow a changed mind. So repentance is the action. Repent is the changing of the mind. Judas changed his mind about what happened. Satanic sorrow confesses its sin. Look at verse 4. Let me go to verse 3 first. Then when Judas' betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He's confessing to them. Why are you bringing back this 30 pieces? Because I've sinned. And they said, we're not tripping. That's only you. You did that. You worked that out yourself. You did what we wanted you to do. We're not taking it back. Satanic sorrow changes its mind. It repents. It makes, it, it confesses its sin. It makes some actions toward repentance. Look at verse 5. Saying, we'll start at verse 4. Saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Verse 5. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. I'm not taking this with me. This is an action of repentance. I've changed my mind. I've confessed my sin. I'm not taking this money. I'm not keeping it. Don't we do the same thing? Don't we repent, change our mind, confess our sin, and then take steps and actions to be different? This is the same thing. Godly sorrow does the same thing as worldly sorrow, but there's one huge difference. Satanic sorrow has no true hope in God. Let's read verse 5 again. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. He hanged himself. For Judas, this satanic sorrow literally produced his death. Literally. 2 Corinthians 7, worldly sorrow produces death. This literally produced his death. And I wouldn't be surprised if he had the same thoughts we have when we give in to sin. I'm a hypocrite. God won't forgive me. He's tired of me. I've sinned this way too many times. Now we would say, well, Judas was destined to he was the son of perdition. He was destined to betray Jesus, right? Sure, in the theological scope, but for Judas, we don't know. He didn't know that. Because if he was destined, he wouldn't have shown any contrition, any sadness, any sorrow for his sin. To Judas, he had a decision to make. Judas wasn't told, as a matter, and proof of this is, when, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, None of them said, oh, it's Judas. He's tripping. This is what we would do. Oh, this, I hope such and such is listening. You better be listening. 
how we be one that hoping everybody else is listening. Yeah. Man, I hope my wife is listening. You better be listening. Yeah. That's what we do. Oh, I would have. We named everybody but us. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's probably them. Cause remember last Tuesday when they was. They were like, is it me? They didn't even think it was you. Even after Jesus said, the one who dips his hand in the bowl, after it. And then Judas dipped his hand in the bowl. <laughs> and these dudes, and then he said, go, whatever you go do quickly. And then he left. And they still like, hey, man, ask him, is it me? I love those guys. They encouraged me. They wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. If you tell me the dude who says this and you don't be like, oh, it's him. I think I'm sharp enough to be like, oh, it's, it's him. Champ, he did that. They was like, I ask him, is it me? What you mean, is it him? He just said it. It's quite possible that Judas presumably believed he couldn't go to God and ask for forgiveness because he sinned against them. He said, I betrayed innocent blood. There was shame. There was shame. And he was so ashamed he killed himself. We don't have any exegetical reason to believe that he asked God for forgiveness. That he experienced the shame. He changed his mind. He confessed his sin. He made some action toward repentance. And then he killed himself. He had no hope in God. No hope. See how close it is? No hope in God. When you sin, what does that sorrow produce in you? How do you feel about God after that? If you committed sin last night, how comfortable were you lifting your hands this morning in praise? There's some people watching online that should be here that may not be here because they struggle with sin and don't feel comfortable being in the presence of God's people. Satan got what he wanted. Death. Sorrow that pushes you away from God is shame. And shame is not from God. Let me prove this because some of y'all think I just be talking and just be saying stuff. <laughs> Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. Here's what the word says. This is God's word, his words. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. When every time you sin, does God take that back out? I have no credible biblical passage that says that. Shame is not from God. Romans 10 verses 11. Paul says this, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Not everyone who doesn't sin after they believe in him, but everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 1 John 2.28 and now, little children, abide in him so that when he, may, when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. I challenge anyone in here to find an incredible Bible translation where shame 
is connected to those who believe in Jesus. Spoiler alert, you will not find it. Because I looked at all couple hundred verses of the word shame. And not one of them, not one of them say that shame is the sorrow that believers should experience after they sin. Biblically speaking, shame is actually reserved for God's enemies, not God's children. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. For God chose what is foolish, talking about the cross and people who believe in it. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Shame isn't for the believers. Shame is for those unbelievers who think you guys are idiots for believing. Colossians 2.15 says this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities talking about cosmic powers of darkness. We already know this because we've been in a supernatural storyline of the Bible series. He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Shame is for his enemies, not for his friends. Titus 2, 7 and 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity. Man, a lot of people should listen to this. Some pastors need this verse. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about it. Shame is never attached to people who genuinely believe in Jesus and who are trying to live that belief. It's never attached to them, at least in the New Testament. I can't find it. In a credible translation. There's a Generation Z Bible that's coming out that I just ordered. Should be here in a couple of days. I can't wait to preach from that next Sunday. They might say something different. Oh, I can't wait to read that one. I want to be hip to the New Age slang. Shame is not from the Lord. So why do many of us live in it? Why do many of us live in shame? Feeling condemned, head down. Why do we live in shame? You know why? Because it's a scheme of the devil to make us feel so ashamed after we sin that we eventually lose confidence that God will forgive us. And we slowly become dead spiritually until we reject it altogether. I know people who have walked away from the faith because it was too hard. But you obey all the laws of the state. You obey all the laws of the state. Most people in this room obey all the laws of the state. I'm prob there's probably a few of us. I mean, I hate to be judgmental, but this is a couple of y'all look like y'all got some charges like me. You know, we just would be honest. This is a couple of y'all look like y'all been locked up with two. We can talk afterwards, you know. I used to wait. I, I was like, I had to wake up at 5, 12, and 5, and after 5 p.m., you ain't got nothing. If you ain't got no commissary, you got to be some dudes in space, and you can take their snacks so you can have something to eat for the rest of the night. It's one or two in here that know that life. 
But most of you don't know that life. You're not out here breaking the laws. So how can you keep all of these laws but say that Christianity is too difficult? Don't let nobody distract you today. Because I think the Lord is talking to you. It is of the utmost importance for Satan to attack us after we sin because we are often the most vulnerable then. My confidence in my relationship with the Lord is the most vulnerable when I give in to willful sin, especially sexual related. My confidence is the most rocked. Satan wants us to feel so ashamed of our sin that we distance ourselves from God to the point of death, first spiritually and then physically. That is satanic sorrow, condemnation, shame. So then what does godly sorrow look like then? Because if shame is not what I'm supposed to have, then what should I feel? What does godly sorrow look like? 2 Corinthians 7.10 said godly sorrow produces a salvation without regret. So what does that look like? How does God want us to respond after we sin? Have no sorrow? No. Have no shame. Shame, satanic sorrow, pushes us away from God. But godly sorrow, salvific sorrow, does the opposite. Case in point, Psalm 51. Listen to this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and then sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness that the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, so I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of, a, of, a bro, of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good design, your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole offerings and so forth. This is the greatest demonstration of godly sorrow in the Bible. And it doesn't push us away from God, it pulls us to him. This is a, this is a paradigm shift for us. Because many of us think when we sin, we need to distance ourselves from God and then deal with it and then come back. But the problem is, when you sin, 
it proves you're too far away from God already. You don't sin because you love God and you're next to him and you're with him. You sin because you're already too far away. Godly sorrow doesn't want us to be ashamed of our sin. God wants us to be affected by it. There's a difference. There's a difference in being ashamed like, man, I'm so fill in the blank. You move away from God. No, God says be affected. Be sobered by your sin. Be sobered. When you're sobered, it, it means to be marked by seriousness, gravity, solemnity. When you're sobered, you feel it. This was wrong. But when it's salvific, it's like, but I need to get right with God. We need to be sober. We hear this word, be sober, be self-controlled. The Greek word nepho means to be well-balanced, self-controlled, to be sober, sober-minded, to be well-composed in mind. Do you realize that we have to be sober-minded even after we fall? You know why? Because falling in sin is a part of the process of maturity. Apart from Jesus, there's no person who did not sin. And there's no person who is not going to sin and have to learn from that and grow. That's part of the process of maturity. But Satan uses, when we fall into sin, to destroy our confidence and our identity. And it's happened to people in this room. It's happening right now. When we give into sin, we have to access a different kind of faith. We have to believe promises of forgiveness and perseverance. When we sin, the promises of judgment are not where we go to. It's the promises of forgiveness and perseverance. We have to believe things like Matthew 8, 18. 21 and 22, when Peter said this to Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said to him. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. You will never find God asking us to do what he hasn't done. So if he's telling Peter, you got to forgive people no matter what, then what is God saying about himself? Are we more holier than God that we can forgive people consistently, but God can't do it? God said, you who are evil, give good gifts to your children. I love my boys. I do stuff with them all the time. And just so y'all know, I got bought. I had a little video freestyling with my son. And we, was bought. we was in the junior. Stop playing with us. The rock got bought. like that. Do you think God's telling you to forgive without measure and he doesn't do that? Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Listen to what God says about himself. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God of merciful, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Is God just saying that to be poetic? What is he imitating Jonathan? No, he's saying, this is who I am. I keep steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He didn't just say sin. He made sure you knew every aspect of sin, iniquity, transgression, and sin. He says, I forgive those. We got to believe Psalm 103, 10 through 14. 
beginning in verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He remembers that he made us from the dirt. Blew into us a breath of light. We're dust. I just saw a video by this popular YouTuber talking about should Christians be cremated. Um, if you dig up a grave 20, 30 years after the person's been gone, ain't nobody. It's all dust, bones, dust. God can work with that. So church, let me say this to Solid Rock. When it's my time, you can cremate me. Don't spend no $15,000. Don't be like, no, that's Pastor Kurt. He earned, no, 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 no. Save the money. Cremate me. Pull my ashes wherever because the God that I serve can bring all them ashes back. Mm, 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 boom. I ain't worried about that. <laughs> Listen, I believe this body don't mean nothing. In fact, I'm, I'm looking forward to a glorified body, to be quite frank. I would like to dunk again, to be honest. That's just me. Satan is scheming us to have worldly sorrow after we sin, not godly sorrow. So God put Psalm 51 in the Bible, the greatest demonstration of godly sorrow. And guess what? That psalm happened after very serious sexual sin. He wrote that after he committed a sin that none of us in this room would probably ever commit. Here's the proof. Let's zoom in. At the beginning, if you, I don't know what kind of Bible you have, but normally in your Bible in the Psalms, it'll give a brief description. It'll say who it was, who wrote it, stuff like that, right? This is what it says about Psalm 51. If you open it up and your Bible has it, it'll say something like this. To the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So it's letting you know David wrote this Psalm after the conversation he had with Nathan, let's look at that conversation, 2 Samuel 12, beginning of verse 1. Here's what he says. Here's what happens. And I quote, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him, and it was... With, with him and his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled. I love it. I love this part. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. So get ready to die, bro. You just said it. He said, you are the man. 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. The Lord's angry. Listen to what he says in verse 11. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. There's consequences for this action. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of, this, of the son. For you did it in secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. So the Lord only put away David's sin? He doesn't put away your sexual sin? Just David. Only his sin was put away. But your sin, my sin, is not. Your sexual sin is not. Your serious sin is not. Just David's? I can't tell. Verse 14, nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And David wrote Psalm 51. Serious sin confronted by the prophet speaking on behalf of God. Nathan leaves and David writes Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my guilt. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You see what's happening? You see the difference? This is very serious sin. But David is not so ashamed that he's moving away from God. He's not. David was told his sin was forgiven by the prophet. You were told your sin is forgiven by the word. It's no different. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Jesus said, heaven and earth may pass away, but my word will never pass away. So whatever I said in my word is not going nowhere. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. So if the Bible says if you are forgiven for your sin, then how you feel about it is incidental. It's irrelevant. The Bible never said you will feel forgiven. He said you are forgiven. David opens up appealing to the forgiveness based on his confidence in God's character. This is the most ser- one of the most serious sin issues in the Bible. And, then, and, and keep in mind that God told Samuel years before this happened that David's a man after my own heart. Huh? Should men after God's own heart just taking people's wives, killing their husbands? No, God knew something else. God can look past the seriousness of your sin and see the tenderness of your heart. He can look and be like, yep, what they did, they are wilding right now. But their heart is tender. This is going to change them. This serious sin they committed. Yeah, I see that. I see past that. 
He's appealing to forgiveness. He's asking for that because it's based on the character and promises of God. In verse 2, look, that godly sorrow wants to be free from the stain of sin. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my guilt. Listen to what he's saying. Wash me. He didn't say, let me wash myself. You wash me. You cleanse me from my iniquity. Not let me do it for myself. Let me back away from the church. Let me drift for a couple of months so that people be like, hey, where's such and such and such and such? Where they been at? And then you see them and they come back all beat up and stuff trying to get themselves back together because they were so ashamed of their sin. They felt like everybody's judging them. And the reality was you were judging yourself. Nobody's judging you. This is the rock. We ain't tripping. We don't care. We care about you being here and being a part of it. You, you judging yourself. Moving away from the Lord because you sinned, and now is the problems with the church. Now I don't like how Pastor Kurt says this. Bye, Felicia. <laughs> That's the enemy. That's the enemy. That's the enemy telling you that. Godly sorrow wants God to free us from the stain of sin, to be washed and cleansed by him, not by ourselves. The point is we can't do it. Do you realize that the further you move away from God, if you really think that God is, is struggling with you and doesn't like you and is offended at you and tired of you, listen, I play basketball, right? I know you can't tell, but stop playing with me. Look, <laughs> play basketball. I play a little semi-pro too. Don't play with me. I'm chubby, but I, can, I, I, got, I, got, I, got, I got that. I'm John Blaze with it, right? And I had this coach. I had this one coach. I had two coaches, one I loved, one I hated. Straight Jacob and Esau out this joint, right? And the coach that I did not like, he was the type of coach that if you went, like I was fancy, I was, a, I was one of them and one people, but I tried to do moves that you could really do in a game. A lot of and one moves were uh, only street game. I wanted to shake you in the gym. I don't want to do a move in the, in the referee like carry that's over. I was like, no, no, no. I'm trying to come in. I want to, I want to make you fall, right? So I was real fancy. So I come down, boom, 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 boom. I throw a behind the back pass, the player would miss it. He'd be like, Kurt, take me out the game. I was like, dang, you know. I hated playing for him, and every time I would get in the game and he was there, I would be nervous because I knew the consequences. I couldn't play with the same confidence. Now, for you, if you don't play sports, it's kind of like when a police officer gets right behind you, you'd be 10 and 2. Before that cop swerved into your lane, you was all one hand driving, chilling. You was just full. You saw that cop, you was like, boom, stiffened up. Now, because I'm from where I'm from, because I'm from the hood, when they get behind me, I'm pulling off in the next neighborhood. Yeah. It ain't because I'm dirty. It's just because I'm, I'm from that. I don't want to get pulled over for 40 minutes so you can check my background and see all that. I'm, I'm pulling over in the next neighborhood. If you want me, you got to come get me. <laughs> but I couldn't play really well because I was nervous. But when the other coach, Coach Schultz, when he, would, he knew I could play, he let me go. I come down, I might try, I might try to cross over, I lose it. He's like, don't worry, don't worry about it. You all right, you all right. Do what you do, do what you do. I come down the court, do a good play. That's what I'm talking about, Kurt. There you go. I played different with him because I knew he believed in me. If you think God is angry at you, you're going to live differently. You're not going to feel, you're not going to want to obey a guy who's pissed off at you. You ain't going to want to be around a guy that you think doesn't, can't stand you. You're not going to want to worship a guy who doesn't want to forgive you. It's a scheme of the devil to make you feel ashamed. And the more you feel ashamed, you move away, and all of a sudden you got problems with God. And God is saying the problem is you too far away. I ain't moving the way you did. Listen to what David is saying, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth of iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. 
Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in a secret heart. Listen to verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Most people don't, don't pray that. If I'm being honest, if I'm being honest, we in church. If I'm being honest, most of us are scared to pray that. We don't want the Lord to purge us. I ain't say everybody, most of it. If that's not you, then let it fly. But there are people in here that are scared to pray this, don't want to pray this, because you're afraid of what that would mean. Purge me with a hyssop, cleanse me. We're afraid. He's saying, purge me with hyssop. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins. He's not just asking for forgiveness. He's asking that God would do a purifying work in him. He's not so ashamed that he can't pray to God and approach God. This dude is praying like he didn't sin. Listen to the boldness of this dude. He, he had sex with another man's wife, then had him killed. Was confronted by the prophet and then said, clean me. You would have thought he'd be like, man, the Lord might do something crazy if I pray that. I, I better get myself together and then go to the temple or ask them to go get the ephod or something. No. He's talking, I need to talk to my father. I need to talk to him. I need to ask him for forgiveness. I need him to do a work of purification in me because I obviously can't do it for myself. He knows that it'll be tough because he said this. He said this in verse 8. Let me, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Sometimes there are consequences and bones get broken. But we rejoice. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. He's asking the Lord, don't remove me from your presence. He's not removing himself from his presence. This is what happens. When this, how, this is how you know the difference between is your sorrow salvific or satanic. Because if it moves you away from God, it is not from him. If you feel like no matter how what the sin is, I cannot go back and confess and ask the Lord to clean me and get then you believe something different than the gospel teaches. Now, this isn't saying let's go sin and then just go. No, 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 no. There, there's a reality there. We can harden our hearts to the point where we we're not going to ask for sin. You will not continue sinning and then keep asking for forgiveness if you don't care. Eventually, you're just going to not care. You're going to get tired of abusing the grace. You're not going to respect the God who just does You won't. No consequences, no nothing. People don't keep, they walk away, they back away. Restore to me, verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold a willing spirit. Teach me, listen to this, listen to this. His prayer is missional. Listen to what he says in verse, verse 13, verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. How many of you thought about that? Look, when I sin, I want to come back and have the Lord. I want to, so that I can tell other people, don't do what I just did. It's missional. Our sin can testify to other people. Don't do this. Don't live like this. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. When's the last time you prayed, Lord, created me a clean heart? When's the last time you were comfortable to do that after serious sin? How many of you last night left masturbation, whatever, and then you come to church hoping that the worship is good enough, the message is cool enough to make you feel different? What about if you believe the promises of God? And it's not about you feeling different, it's about you doing different. And you, you know what, Lord? Yeah, I failed. I failed. You knew I was going to fail. 
But I'm not going to run away from you, Lord, because that's not what this is. It's taking me out the game because I threw a bad pass. You're the coach that's encouraging me to keep going until I throw a right one. Church, there's too many people ashamed in this room. You are ashamed. You are ashamed. And that shame is keeping you sinning. It's not freeing you from it. Because shame produces death. You are dying spiritually. The Lord brought you here today to say, come back home. Come back home. Shame separates us from God. We know this. We know it. Remember this in Genesis 2? Back in Genesis. <laughs> Genesis 2.24, remember this? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Remember that? No shame. Remember what happened after they bit from the tree? Remember that? Then the eyes, verse 7, Genesis 3, 7, 8. Then the eyes of them were both opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Almost any commentary you read will say that their eyes being opened and they knew that they were naked was about being ashamed. And so they sewed fig leaves on. And what happens after that? They hide. They hide from God. Satan told Eve, if you give in, you'll be more like God. Satan tells us when we sin, you should give up because you're not like him. It's a good hustle. He's sharp. Give him his respect. He's sharp. It's a good hustle. Because he's got a lot of us in a crib. And we're not growing because we're living in the wrong sorrow. We're living in the wrong sorrow. Giving into sin, feeling condemned. There are people in this room and watching online and we'll watch later that are more like Judas than David. Now keep in mind, David didn't continue sinning. So don't ask for forgiveness to continue sinning. That's not what it is. But it's your sorrow. Look, condemnation and conviction feel the same initially. You can't tell the difference. You'll come up here and pray. You'll feel sad. You may cry even. It feels the same. But what you do after that will reveal if it was satanic or salvific. Mm -hmm. If it pushes you away from God, that's the enemy. You should never feel ashamed to come to God for three reasons. One, because he knew you were going to commit that sin before the foundation of the world. Two, he sent Jesus Christ to pay for, for the sins of his people and he extends forgiveness based upon Jesus Christ. And three, because he said, approach the throne of grace with confidence. Not approach the throne of grace with confidence when you don't sin. But approach the throne of grace with confidence even when you do sin. Because your identity hasn't changed. Your proximity has. You are still my son. Still my daughter. Who you are hasn't changed. That's the enemy telling you that. Spoiler alert. Everybody's a hypocrite. And let's clear. Let's just be clear. Satan calling us a hypocrite is the epitome of the pot calling the kettle black. I'm a hypocrite? Yeah, fam. So are you. 
There was an old commercial for the Ad Council campaign where this little boy was in the room and his father busted open the door and he had these drugs and he said, where, do you do? where did you get these drugs from? And he's yelling at his son and his son said, I got it by watching you. I learned it by watching you. And the dad's face is like all along like, dad, you're a hypocrite. Yeah, I got it from you, fam. You're the biggest hypocrite. The difference, though, is I'm forgiven because he were forsaken. The one who's calling you a hypocrite is not forgiven, and he is forsaken. Don't listen to him. Listen to the word of God. If you don't believe me, listen to the word of God in Isaiah 118. Listen to what he said. This old, this old Testament God. Listen to that old God. It's that Old Testament God. It's the God of the Old Testament is this, that, and the third. The God of the Old Testament said this. Come now. Let us reason together. Says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. It's that Old Testament God. So yeah, your sins are red, but I'm going to make them white as snow. Here's the New Testament God. First Timothy, second Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Here's that, here's that, here's that God in 2 Peter 1.9. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sin. Peter is saying, if you're stuck in sin and you're not growing, you've actually forgotten who you are. It's not saying you're not who you are, it's you just don't believe who you are. You need more faith. You need more faith to believe that God says what he says about you. We need faith to be like, you know what, Lord? This was evil and this was sinful. But I need to press into you more. I don't need less of God when I sin. We can't clean ourselves up. What are we going back to? The, what are we, the Galatians, beginning with the spirit, but now with the flesh. I can't clean myself up. When I sin, it's because I'm too far away from God already. Yeah. I, need, I need Psalm 51. When you struggle with serious sin and you fall, if that's you right now today, you need Psalm 51. You need to go there and be like, you know what? Let me read some of this. Let me pray this back to God. You got people in here that you just stop tripping. There are people that used to love the Lord and look like they love the Lord, and now they come in like they're forced to be here. Now they come in no joy in their life. It ain't because the Lord is different. It ain't because the Lord is distant. It's because you are. When people lose their joy, it ain't because the Lord took it. Why would the Lord say the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness, and then take joy from you? Why would he do that? No, we take it from ourselves, church. We give up because we fall into sin, and we need to learn how to persevere. Y'all know, know who William Dallas is? Dallas, raise your hand, Dallas. See that man right there? Stand up real quick, Dallas. And LaWanda, can you stand up with him? Stand up, LaWanda. Let me tell you something about let me tell you something about him right there. When we planted, when we when we when we planted a church and we began a new church, he came to me and said, Hey, can I do an AA meeting in the church? I didn't even notice about him at the time. And he sat down with me and walked me through how he was he was addicted to alcohol. And he told me stories of how he ruined his life, damaged his wife, and then Lawanda was there, struggling but fighting with him. And I said, Yeah, bro, let's do it. So he started doing AA meetings. I went to a couple of them and I was blown away. And I was watching guys come in. And who were fighting, and he was just count. He was in his element. I, I, I wasn't. He, I, he didn't bring me there so I could talk. I was, I was just watching. We were in the double classroom right there, and I'm watching Dallas just careful to do, challenge to do, 
Make sure he understands this is what it takes, brother. This is what it takes. His wife with him, the whole t- fighting with him. See, I don't know people like that in the church. Can you imagine if he would have said, man, I can't do this. I'm going to give up. I'm going to walk away from all of this. I'm too ashamed. If you want to know how to persevere and what it looks like when you're struggling, ask that man right there at the church. If you want to know what it's like to support somebody like that, ask his wife right there. It's real, folks. This is real. It's people in our church. This is real. This isn't just scripture and being funny and cool on a Sunday morning. Who cares about that? The Lord is not impressed with that. This is real. We are his people. And when we fall, the worst thing we can do is be like, I can't. I'm, of course you are a hypocrite. Sure you are. Oh, go-go language. Show you right. Of course you are. This is why we have to be sober-minded after we sin, because it's a scheme of the devil to make us think that we actually have the ability to clean ourselves up enough to present ourselves back to God. God is not like our parents. Remember when your parents would get mad at you and be like, go to your room. I don't want to see your face anymore. Go to your room. Maybe y'all ain't had that. I did. But I was wild. My mother had just reasons to say that at the time. <laughs> Let me be, be clear. Let me vindicate my mother. There was plenty of reasons why she said, I can't even look at you. Go in your room. And I would be terrified because then you got to use the bathroom like 30 minutes later. <laughs> be at the door, peeking to see if she's in the hallway because you don't want to run into her. Looking, tiptoeing to the bathroom, almost there. See, no. Terrified. God doesn't do that. Doesn't tell you go in your room. I don't want to see you. He says, come to the throne. You need to see me. Your sin does not separate you from God. Your shame does. Your shame separates you from God. And there are people in this room now who are ashamed and have been. And the Lord is saying, no more. Be affected by your sin, not ashamed. Tell God, I need to cleanse me. I need to be nearer to you. I need more of you, not less of you. Remember 1 John 2, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the Christ. Dallas, thank you, brother. Thank you for your faithful example. Lawanda, thank you for being there. Quiet, faithful people that don't, you wouldn't even know it. That's who y'all need to talk to. Y'all need to have a line asking them how they did it. This isn't about, oh, sin and just be like, yeah. No, 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 we're not talking about just sin and just be like, I ain't stopping, but I'm going to keep asking for it. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about making sure that your sorrow is not satanic, that it's not moving you away, that you press in so that God can cleanse you, purge you with hyssop change you so that you don't commit that sin again. And sometimes we have to keep going because some issues are harder than others. But we don't give up because we gave in. We get up so that we don't get out. Let's pray. Father, this is a great scheme of the devil. This is one of them. And next week we'll hit the other one. Great scheme of the devil to make us feel shame. And that shame, when it's shame, it always creates distance. We don't want to meet with our small group. 
we don't, or we don't want to confess sin. We don't feel comfortable. We're embarrassed. We distance ourselves. We come to church and leave right after. And I'm not saying if people leave right after, Lord, that it's because of serious sin. So, Lord, help us not to judge nobody because I said that. But it is a temptation for us. Lord, we don't want to be in the comfort of the light when we're living in the dark. It's not comfortable. It doesn't feel right. So we distance ourselves or we make excuses for the sins that we commit. We try to clean ourselves up and do the right instead of listening to you, to be cleansed by you, to be purged with hyssop by you. Father, I pray for everyone in this room who finds themselves in this place. that They wouldn't feel ashamed. We pray after the service, let's come up and, and be free. We don't need to feel ashamed. It's a good scheme of the devil. He definitely had me for a good while. Even as a pastor, I used to feel ashamed. Then I started being transparent, humbling myself, believing your word, pressing in. It's a good scheme. It's easy for us. We don't always know how to feel, what, what's the right sorrow, so we can... We can evaluate it by, is this pushing me away or drawing me close to God? Lord, may none of us change our mind about our sin, confess it, and make some action of repentance, and then kill ourselves spiritually like Judas. But may we, no matter how serious or how consistent the pattern is, the pattern is more consistent probably because we're more distant after we sin. We keep a safe distance from you because we feel like we can't approach you, as if we could approach you if we didn't commit that sin. We can only approach you because of Jesus. His blood washes us. That Isaiah 118 is true because Jesus' blood washes ours white as snow. So help us, Lord. Help us to remember that Jesus is our only master and that we should be affected by our sin but not ashamed for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that encouraging message, Pastor Kurt. We appreciate you. Uh, remember, if you have any questions, uh, the banner up there tells you the number to text your question to. We do have a few that are in. Um, could you explain uh, the difference between sin, transgression, and iniquity? Uh, so in the Old Testament, <clears throat> there were different kinds of sins that God had laid out. So they had different sacrifices for different sins. So iniquity, transgression, and sin, they're all essentially one and the same thing. But they're different kinds of sins that people commit. So I'll just keep it simple because it's a lot to explain. So that, they're just different kinds of sin, but they're all sins. And so God required different kinds of sacrifices for certain sins. There were more, some sins were more offensive to God than others. Some sins made you unclean, some didn't. It just varies. So the different, God is just basically saying the different levels of sin, the different kinds of sin, I'm forgiving all of them because it's at the bottom. That's my character to do so. All right. Uh, this, uh, Next question is, um, could there be some issues or lack of progression in our lives? Uh, could they be the result of the consequences of our past sins? 
Uh, I think I don't. I think sure, but I think it's more about how you think about the consequences of those sins. Like you have to understand, we live in a cultural context where, and we relate to. So we live in a, a cultural context of Christianity where. The gospel sort of, the message that Jesus taught was sort of threefold, right? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, right? Take up his cross and follow me. We live in a cultural Christian context where we want to follow Jesus but not deny ourselves or take up our cross. So denying ourselves, so Jesus denied himself the access to be fully, to the access that he has as fully God. He said, I'm not going to, I'm still fully God, but I'm going to deny myself the right to act like fully God. Because if Jesus acted like fully God, he wouldn't eat, sleep, or do none of that stuff. He wouldn't need to, because God doesn't need those things. But he said, I'm going to humble myself, deny myself the right to access those things so that I can be a human being. So we deny ourselves the right to access the pleasures of sin that we had, that we liked before we became a Christian. Then we choose to suffer. We're saying we're willing to suffer whatever the consequences are for that decision, because of Jesus. We don't choose our suffering, we choose to suffer. We choose to say, I'm going to believe in you, Jesus, even if I'm affected by things. And then we follow him. That's what it means. So a lot of us, the way we look at our past sometimes, we can think certain consequences are hindering us or what, and that might not be the case. It could just be, I'm not looking at this the right way. There are going to be some consequences for our sins. But consequences aren't the absence of the love of God. You know, discipline my kids because they did something. It's not because I hate them. And it's because I don't want you to do this again. I want you to realize, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not doing it. There are times we don't do stuff because we went through something before and was like, yeah, I ain't doing that again. I'm not doing that. There's certain things that you're just not going to do because you had an experience. I remember, <laughs> it's not funny, but it's funny to me because I'm from this world. I remember meeting this girl who used to do a lot of drugs, and she used to do a lot of acid. And I never liked those type of drugs. They were just a little too chemical for me. Like I wanted something a little bit more natural because them chemical drugs had people lunched out. And she, she, was, she was like, I had a really bad trip. This is why she stopped doing She had a really bad trip. And then that's all she, she wouldn't get into details, but she did tell me this. She worked at a bank and she said at any moment she could just be chilling and she would hear somebody scream really loud. Ah! And then she would jump and it wouldn't be anyone. It was the consequences of the drug. So she trained herself, whenever that happened, to just slowly look up and make sure nobody's lunched out in the bank. You know, she'd look around, but it was a consequence of it. There are consequences for our sin that help us, I don't do this again. So it's really how you process those previous sins. It's a real issue. So, um, in Psalm 103, um, it says that God shows compassion. Uh, Judas took some steps uh, to try to make what he did right, but he took his own life. Um, is there any compassion or grace um, from God for believers who take their own lives? I have no idea. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how God views that, to be honest. I used to be, like, I don't know. I'm, it's not the unpardonable sin, right? That's not the unpardonable sin. But um, I don't know how God views that. I'd like to think, well, yeah, God has compassion and that person can still go to heaven. But I wouldn't teach it because I just don't know. 
I don't know. I think there's a lot of things about that kind of stuff that we just take for granted. We think God is just going to be like, like Father Time or something, or like Santa Claus, just like, I don't know how he's going to see that. It could be that God has mercy. on a, It could be the circumstances of that person. What if they're suffering really badly and they decide to end their life? With, you know, they don't want to, God could have mercy on that. But if they just decide, you know, I hate my life, I hate this, I hate this, I'm going to take my own life. You know, you can do that very sinfully. You can do it to punish people who hurt you while you're alive. So that's an act of vengeance, an act of bitterness. I don't know how God's going to see that. It, can God have compassion? 100%. Does God always have compassion when people do that? I, I would be, I'm not comfortable saying that. I don't know the circumstances in which God would do that. But yeah, he can have compassion. It's just not a, it's not a gamble I'm willing to take. I mean, in all honesty, like, let's be honest, like, if you, depends on, it, it really depends on how you view God. Like, it always strikes me as, as, as wild when people k- commit their own life because it's like, it's like, well, what do you think is going to happen after you die? Like, you got to stand before God. And if you don't know him, then what, the life that you're going to is far worse than the life that you're experiencing. There's no, once you leave here, there's no, ter- there's no chance to change. I'm not Catholic. I don't believe in purgatory. It's you, you, you die and you face judgment. There's no, there is no, my bad, Lord, I'm, there's none of that. There's, that's, it's, that's it. So, you know, I just, it's not a gamble that I think I'd be willing to take. Because I don't, I don't, there's no, I don't think there's anything worse in this life that will be worse than, the, than what happens in the afterlife for a person who does not know the Lord. I just don't know. But how, can he have compassion? Sure. But I'm not going to teach that this person, it, I think the circumstances matter. God knows who really loves him and why we do what we do even more than we do. Good question. All right. Um, this person asks, uh, says that they're more aware of the reality of shame for their past sin leads to their downfall and destruction. But they ask um, because shame has been, they've seen it as a shield that helps prevent them from sinning, how should they uh, process that after today's message? Well, is it shame or sobriety? That might not be shame. Shame pushes you away from sin. If it's sorrow that, that, that prevents you from sinning, it, could not, it might not be shame. It could be sobriety. You have to understand, shame is a very, it has particular actions. When it's shame, shame removes you away from God. Sobriety, like I'm sobered by what I've done, that doesn't push you away from God. It helps you press in, like, all right, I need to, I need more, I need to pray, I need to, I need to, I need to confess to my brothers, I need help in this area. I'm not going to remove myself from the means of grace that God provided because that's not how it works. So it might not be the shame that the Bible's talking about that says that Christians are not subject to. That might, you just might, you might be confused, it might be confusing the, 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 the words. When you're, when you're ashamed or shame, that's going to push you away from God. But there is godly sorrow, right? So you could be experiencing godly sorrow, and that godly sorrow does put a plan of obedience in. Godly sorrow does want to be clean and walk right with the Lord. Godly sorrow doesn't want to pretend and hide and withdraw from God. Godly sorrow says, I want to be closer. I sin because I'm too far away. Not I need to get far away to clean up my sin because you can't do it. Because if you could do it, then what did Jesus come and die for? If we could get ourselves together, then what was the point of the gospel? There's no point in it. So, 
Right. If we find ourselves in a place where we have let shame rule us and keep us from God, what are some steps that we can take to make things right with the Lord and with others? If you're, if you're here, come up in a minute after we do communion and pray. And be bold and just tell the Lord that. Listen, the Lord, the Lord is, he's not like, the Lord doesn't get overwhelmed. He doesn't, he's not blown away. The Lord is not like, you did what? You know, he's not like, oh, man. It's not like when you sin, they're looking at each other like, do you see this? That's just not what happens. Like, the Lord is like, look, I knew they were going to do this way before, before the earth was created. I know everything. And I still said, they belong to me. He belongs to me. She belongs to me. So I think you got to confess it. you got to do what David did. Confess it to the Lord. Right? Ask the Lord to cleanse you and do that. And you can start by, if you're at home, act, go, read, meditate on Psalm 51. I think everybody who feels like this applies to them, don't hear this, agree with it. Do, meditate on Psalm 51. Amen. You, there, God, there's no pressure. God is not like, hey, come on, man, you need to read the Bible in a year. Come on. God would rather have you meditate on Psalm 51 for the rest of the year if it meant you were being more like him. He doesn't care how much you read. He cares how much you believe what you read, how much you live what you read. Take some time in Psalm 51. If you need to, if you're there, say, you know what, for the next couple weeks, I'm just going to read this over, meditate. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to memorize certain verses of it. You know, I'm going to say this because I was, I was going to say this for a totally other time. I'm going to say this now. In the Bible, right? There are really three different modes of obedience that God has for his people. He lays it out in three clear, distinct ways, right? You have one, the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the, those are all people that are going to heaven. These are all attributes that God loves and cares about, right? So you can look at what, what Beatitude do I want to focus on so that my actions are, so I got one that's blessed are the pure of heart. I was like, man, I want to grow more being pure of heart. So I make decisions based on trying to grow in that beatitude. So you have that. Then you have the fruits of the spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and all of those things. You have fruits of the spirit. So you know, okay, what attribute do I want to grow in? So me, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So I'm doing things because I want to put this action into these categories. That's what I'm doing. The third thing is four. The third thing is love. Love is patient, it's kind, it is not rude, it does not insist on its own way. So I, you ask yourself, okay, what's the action of love that's required right now of me? How can I be loving? Okay, love isn't rude, it doesn't insist on its own way. All right, that's what I need to focus on right now. And the fourth one is the seven letters to the churches. Right? The seven, you got seven letters where God is talking to believers saying, here's some things you're doing well, but here's some things you're not doing well. You need to do these things. So right now, I'm in Ephesus. There are things that I'm doing because the church in Ephesus, he said this. I see what you're doing this. I see that. I see that. But this I have against you. You've forgotten your first love. He said, go back and do the works you did at first. So you know what I'm doing? I wake up very early in the morning to pray. When I first got saved, I had this job driving for Airborne Express. It was like a gangster FedEx, right? <laughs> all of us was gangsters. It was, a, it was gangsters. All were, I used to drive. So I had to get up at 4. I used to be, had to be there by 6 to load your truck. I would get up at 4 o'clock or 4.30, spend some time in prayer, read scripture, and then drive. And then I would take note cards, write them on three by five. I'd put them in the dash, and I would just drive, memorizing scripture all day. When my mom was up here two years ago, she said she used to see all these note cards. All, you guys hear me spout out all these verses, and y'all like, wow, Pastor Kurt. Ain't no wild Pastor Kurt. I put in work. Yeah. 
I memorized them verses. And I realized, you know what, Lord? I forgot my first love. I need to get back up and pray early like I do. And now I need to memorize scripture. So that's what I'm doing. Obe- simplify your obedience. You got fruits of the spirit, beatitudes, the definition of love, and the seven churches. You can be like, all right, this is where I want to grow. I'm going to focus, and my actions are going to be I want to grow in this. Some of you need to get back to your first love. Some of you are Laodicea. You're lukewarm. You need to make a decision. You need to learn how to, how do I persevere through things that have been crippling to me? Some of you need to talk to William Dallas and ask him, how did you do it? Some people never be alcoholism. Never. It kills people. It has killed people. And that man's been sitting in this church. He's been here longer than me. I've been here 15 plus years. Him and his wife been here longer than me. Quietly sitting there, jewels. We need stuff like that. But I would, I would, I would today come up here and just ask for prayer. Pray. But then take Psalm 51. That's the greatest demonstration of godly sorrow in the Bible. And read that over and over and over until you believe it. And then you create a plan from it. So. All right, this is the last question that we uh, have right now. And it's the last question. All right, so it's the last question, Perry. Only because I want to pray. Um, so uh, if there are ways we've sinned in the past that still have a grip on us, what are some ways uh, we can approach others um, and ask for help without being ashamed of where we're at? So I'm old school. I'm an OG, low-key OG. So I grew up listening to rap since I was since 1981. I liked the fat boys better than Run DMC. I didn't know it'd be prophetic for me. But, but there was this song back in the day, and it was called Ain't Nothing To It But To Do It So Those That Can Dance To Clap Your Hands To It. You're not going to do it unless you do it. Ain't nothing to it but to do it. You have to go to people that you believe are mature and say, I need help. The good news is you have two pastors here. You have, you have Banjo who was up here. We have a leader, leadership team. Stand up, please. If you're on the leadership team, please stand up. All these people you can go to. If you're a core group leader, stand up. Core group leader, stand up. If you're a core group leader. You can go to any of these people and ask for prayer. If you, if you don't feel comfortable, you don't know who to go to. And there's plenty of other people I could name stand up. Boanerges, stand up. If you're in Boanerges, stand up. Worship leader there, JP. You can do that. I can name plenty of people. I could tell you, talk to Phil Allen right there. Loves the Lord. That's somebody you want to, Donnie and Amber right here. Will pray for, they will pray for you so long, the church that rents the building next will be like, y'all have to go. Hasta luego. <laughs> they will pray that long. Plenty of people. I could have other people stand up. Jonathan and Tammy, Ray, I could have them stand up. Carla, right there, I could have her stand up. There's plenty. If you need somebody to pray with you, there are going to be people up here. There are going to be people in this room. They can do it. Don't let, don't let that. That's the, I, think, I think that's the enemy. No, you can't trust them. There are some people you might not be able to trust. Right? Off the Indiana Jones, shoes in the cup. Choose wisely. Right? You got to. <laughs> These are people that you can choose, and there are others. But take advantage of it. When the Lord does stuff, says stuff like this, don't agree with it and then leave. Because the enemy will tell you, man, he was, 
Don't listen to that, man. You good. Like, the Lord knows your heart. That's exactly why he taught us today. Because he knows your heart. And your heart is not right with him. And you don't need to be ashamed. You need to be affected. You need to change your sorrow. And you won't do it unless you do it. And those that get hands to clap your hands to it. <laughs> All right, let's take this communion and then we're going to pray. If you are not a believer yet in Jesus Christ, this is the only part of the service we'd ask you not to participate in because the scripture says that if anyone takes communion that is not a believer, then you heap judgment on yourself. We would not want that to happen. We want you to have redemption. We want you to be redeemed by the Lord, not judged. I want you to die or he comes back and you see a father, not a judge. So we would ask you not to participate in this today. But I would love to talk to you about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Listen, there are pl- I was one. There are plenty of people in this room who at one point in their lives would have been like, I'm not a believer, so I can't do this. So don't be ashamed. That's another thing the enemy gets. You be ashamed to ignore it. So you're just going to leave and be like, all right, you don't got to figure out on your own. We're right here. We'll talk with you, answer any questions you have, all of it. Google doesn't know everything. Google gives you information, but sometimes you need experience, right? But for those of us who do believe, Jesus, listen, I, I'll close my thing. Hebrews 12 tells us that, that for the joy set before him, that he despised the shame of the cross. He despised it. Jesus didn't care that people would shame him for being on the cross. He cared that we wouldn't feel ashamed when we sin because he took the shame from us. He despised the shame. He said, I don't care about the shame of that. I'm despising the shame. So to imitate Jesus, despise your shame today. Despise your shame. Don't be ashamed. When we pray, don't be ashamed. Nothing to be ashamed of. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the blood of Jesus, this thing right here that we're remembering, that his body was broken for us, this is why we're not ashamed. We need to be affected, but not ashamed. So let's eat this together because he despised the shame. Now let's drink this together because he despised the shame for us. Father, we thank you for your word and your truth. Lord, you know I've been praying all week that you would free some people. There's some sons and daughters that belong to you that just got the wrong sorrow. We think think that the more mature we are, the less we struggle with sin. (laughs) That's not my experience. The more mature I get by your grace, the more I'm aware of my sins, even though I don't even sin in the ways that I used to. It's not a bad thing. I'm comforted by the blood. And it's not just a song that I sing or a mental assent, but I'm grateful because I know that there's not one thing that I've done that pleases you that outweighs all the ways that I haven't. I sin more than I'm a saint. But you said I'm a saint and not a sinner. You don't call us sinners after we believe. You call us saints, sons, sheep, beloved, many other names. So, Lord, I just pray in your name, in Jesus' name, that if there are any here who are watching live or in here now that that, that are carrying any shame, that they would not be ashamed to change their mind, to put to death that kind of sorrow. Some of us need to confess that we have been living in the wrong kind of sorrow. And what we're not talking about, Lord, you know, we're not talking about there should be no sadness for sin. 
or that we should continue in the sin. No, David's prayer is to be clean, to not sin in that way again, to be removed from that, but wanting you to do it. Father, give us the courage today to ask for prayer or to pray at home, wherever we are. Give us the courage today, Lord, to tell the enemy, we're not listening to you anymore. You're not my master. Jesus is my only master. Shame is not my master. Jesus is our only master. Help us to have the right sorrow. We want conviction, not condemnation. Lord, may none of us treat our sin the way Judas did, with no hope in you. Yep, he changed his mind. He confessed it. He had an act of repentance of giving the money back, but he had no hope in you. Lord, we may not kill ourselves immediately like Judas, but we withdraw and we kill ourselves spiritually. And then we end up walking away. And there's no sin that we've committed that is more serious than David's sin. And you said, the Lord has put away your sin. And he hadn't even died on the cross yet. May that be true of us for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Leadership team, can you come forward, please, guys, over here?